0: hello and welcome to the lively faith podcast I am your host the Reverend Nathan Stomberg rector of Holy Communion Anglican Church in East Greenwich Rhode Island and today I'm joined by my friend and longtime colleague the Reverend Mark Galloway retired Anglican priest and unfortunately today Corey DuPont can not be with us due to illness and we wish him all the best and pray for a speedy recovery before we get started we'd love to stay in touch with you, our dear viewers and listeners, why not click that link in your description and join our email list. We'll send you occasional emails about new episodes and other important updates. But as always, thank you so much for your support, and we thank God for his continued blessings. So with that being said, today let's get started. We are going to be talking about personal testimonies. We'll be sharing a bit of our personal backgrounds, Mark, so our Listeners and viewers can get to know us better. And then we're going to transition into a discussion about evangelism, what constitutes evangelism, some of the differences in styles and approaches, common pitfalls, and then also doing evangelism in the context of Rhode Island culture, as we've touched upon briefly in the past. So we'll start with just getting to know each other. And I'll ask you to go first, Mark. Just Just to put you on the spot, because I need some more time to think about it. But
1: we have such a longer span to think about.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Yes. My my, uh, my advanced age and wisdom. So, just to give you a, a prompt here, we're just really looking to touch upon kind of like what we talked about in the first episode some of your personal history, where you grew up, and leading that into really what has. Formed you into the person you are today, and how that ties in with, say, theological background, theological training, vocation, vocation, where to
1: come from, type of yeah, thing. Yeah,
0: exactly. Where, where do we come from? How do we get here? Uh, bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: um,
0: um,
1: I grew up in Exeter, Rhode Island, and I was born in 1964, February the 28th. I just turned 59 recently. Um, when, when I was growing up in Exeter, uh, which is, was a regional school district, as you well know, you and your brother, uh, ex-West Greenwich, uh, the, the district I grew up in and the two of you grew up in are completely different worlds, right? So Exeter was uh, st- still, or uh, uh, was, in 1960s into... Um, really the early 80s, uh, one of the poorest towns in Rhode Island, and particularly where I grew up, the west side of Exeter, was extremely poor, the poorest part of uh, of uh, the town. And um, it utterly, it really shaped my understanding of the world. When you're young, you know, I can remember being, you know, four, five, six, seven on early grades, um, Everybody around me, and you you know where I grew up, we've run a hundred times around the block, as we call it. It's two and a half miles around there. And um, and I can remember when you and I first, when you were a young teenager, we ran around that, and you're thinking, this is lovely, this area, right? Well, it's a paradise compared to what it was in 1970. Uh, It was very working class poor. um, with All kinds of domestic issues and... um, things associated with poor rural people uh, in Rhode Island. And Rhode Island's always been a paradox. I think for people, I can remember my my uh, cousins and my aunt and uncle coming from Colorado, from cow country, ranch country. And their perception of the Northeast was that from somewhere from like Washington to the tip of Maine was nothing but sidewalks and city. Hmm. That was how they, so when they came to Rhode Island and realize outside of the metropolitan area, you know, Woonsocket, Cranston, Warwick, Providence, uh, the vast majority of Rhode Island is woods. Yeah. Right? And, and the culture of those towns, those western border towns, you know, from Boroughville, Foster Gloss, ex you and know, all the Cherahoe towns, uh, are really um, conservative rural people. Now that's changed in the last of my lifetime in 50 years, it's become less and less so, but it was very much so in 1964. Um, so that was my world. I, yeah. I didn't know of any other world. I mean, my father worked in a mill in Westerly, it was a lace mill. We, we lived in a trailer house, uh, on, that was on my grandparents' land. Um, uh, and we had one vehicle, 1960 Volkswagen Bug. Um, that, and my mother, you know, stayed home, and three kids in three years, type of, of uh, thing. And uh, that was just normative up and down mm. the street. There was, you know, uh, multi-generationals living in family and homes. Um, I think it's important to remember, f- f- from my perspective, as being the last year of the baby boomers, that. I'm just one generation removed from my mother who lived, grew up in a hundred yards from the trailer house that I grew up in, mm. in a house that my grandfather built out of scrap wood that he got from Quonset Point, discarded lumber from Quonset Point is how he built the house. It was not built on a foundation. It was built on logs.
0: Wow. The, the
1: floor was built on logs and added to... Uh, in a very haphazard way, over the course of the next forty years or so, uh, to me, I, I, it looked pretty normal. To me, it was, a, it was a, big, a lot bigger than the trailer house that uh, we lived in. But my mother went to a one-room schoolhouse. It yeah. was a half a mile down the road, Austin Farm Road, which was dirt at the time, and it did not have running water, did not have electricity. And that's my mother. It's not little house in a prairie. It's not, you know, George Washington. It's my mother going to school in 1952, uh, to this place. Yeah. And that's not ancient history. No, not at all. And so that's the paradox of Rhode Island. You had 80% of the population living in the metropolitan area, but those who lived out in the rural areas lived a completely different life, just 25 miles from the capital city. Um, and so that's the world I grew up in. And, um, it wasn't until 1967 that what is now no, you know as Metcalf elementary school it was a middle school. Uh, and I can remember being built. My father was on the town council. He was the vice president of the town council in Exeter at the time. And I can remember they were building the gym, you know, the backside of the gym with all the bricks are. Yeah. Uh, and I can remember I was, uh, four or five years old and looking up. I thought it was the largest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. And, um, Originally, that school housed students from the fifth to the ninth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, so, until I was in the sixth grade, ninth graders went to, to the middle school, it was called Metcalf Middle School. And then um, the state had given uh, permission because the teachers weren't credentialed to teach secondary education. So, they were getting a dispensation from the state. Eventually, they made a all, all, all the high school kids, including ninth graders, go to North Kingstown High School. You actually had a choice. You'd go to Coventry High School and have no transportation, mm-hmm. or you'd go to North Kingstown and have transportation provided. And so we would go to school together from fifth to eighth or ninth grade, and then half, many of the West Greenwich kids would disperse to Coventry, like the Mishnach kids and, and the Exeter kids. West Exit, but especially East Exit, would all go to North Kingston. Yeah, yeah. So, so we get divided up a bit um, when we get to that age. So, um, so that's this kind of the, the, the demographic and the sociology of, uh, of where I grew up. You just didn't venture far from home. Like we, uh, this is before the malls. This is, I mean, this is so long ago for you two. This is before Midland Mall, where Sears used to be. I don't know if you guys yeah. even, even remember that.
0: Later to become had, the Rhode Island Mall. Right, and
1: it had the big water tower that originally was built that was long gone. And we would go shopping uh, to Situate, to the IGA in situ which doesn't exist. That one doesn't exist anymore. Or that must like, have been yep, a hike for you. 20 miles, up 102, or two. Or we'd go into uh, Arctic mm-hmm. uh, to do some shopping. In, in West in, Warwick. In West Warwick or Garden City. And Cranston. And so, uh, and then Coventry had uh, a Piggly Wiggly. And then they built Almax and Kmart and uh, right around 1970. And they're that big empty lot next to Burger King now. And that was like, like, big, big deal. Kmart was a big deal,
0: right? Kmarts.
1: Kmarts. Yeah. Always an S. My grandparents always put S on that. Uh, oh, oh we traveled to Hope Valley which was six, six or seven miles into Hope Valley, uh, which is on the Richmond and Hopkinton border. And you know there was a, a little pharmacy there, a bakery, uh, an, old, an old the old style AMP, mm-hmm. which was a little very little supermarket. And we didn't shop much there though. We mostly went into Coventry. So the world was very small uh, when I was uh, and that really lasted. That paradigm lasted really till I was about 12,13 somewhere in there, and my world didn't get much bigger than that until, until some years later. And uh, my parents went to St. Joseph's Catholic Church. Uh, my father had converted to Catholicism, actually converted before he met my mother, interesting enough. My, my mother's French-Canadian. My grandfather's family from Quebec, came to the United States, turn of the century, 20th century. Um, <laughs> Uh, he had converted the Navy, if I remember right, to Catholicism and then married my mother uh, when he was stationed here in the Navy, having grown up in Colorado. And, um, so we, we, we were very regular church attenders. We would be very typical Catholic family. Uh, we, we went to Mass every Sunday, very really, because I remember us missing Mass. We, we said grace at meals we didn't talk about God or doctrine or Jesus or anything other than that. That was, that was kind of this very stereotypical 60s, 70s family. And, uh, and of course Vatican II had, had finished in the mid sixties. So just when I was being born, Vatican II was ending. So I don't have any recollection of Latin mass, for instance. So I grew up as a, post-Vatican to child, which really meant that uh, I didn't grow up in a really strict sense that it was our way or no way, highway, with mm-hmm. my parents, and um, I've shared with you, I went to, growing up, year after year, went to the local American Baptist Church in Hope Valley for Vacation Bible School, and uh, the priest at our parish I grew up with was really good friends with Hmm. both the episcopal priest who was in Kanachit at the time and and uh, the American Baptist pastor in Hope Valley so i i didn't grow up with a bias it just was not part of the melu that i grew up in so i didn't i didn't have any of that type of defensive apologetics about who i was i i knew that we were different than them but it was never an issue impressed by my parents that we were somehow better or worse. Um, being a Catholic in Exeter, Skinning Jew minority, yeah, it, it, I mean it's, it's very much. It, it was a le- little less so by the time I was growing up. When my mother was growing up, they were the only Catholic family in the school she went to. Wow. And it, just to give you like an idea of the Cold War, as it was in those days, this would be the forties into you know, the fifties. You had to do certain things every day at school. First of all, they had to go get water out of the brook at Austin Farm <laughs> uh, for water for the day. And, uh, and then eight, eight, different kids would have the job to come to school early to stoke the st- stove with coal so it would be warm enough and make sure the glass gas lanterns were all ready to go. And um, But you had to pray. Hmm. And uh, there was six one-room schoolhouses with a superintendent i believe and uh, of course it was as all of american i think people forget this all of american public education was protestant founded right it was it was founded out of protestant school private school experiences church experiences and it evolved post-civil war into modern american public schools people just don't know that they just think there's always public schools and they they always had this secular quality to them. No, they were completely driven by a Protestant ethic. And so Catholics and Catholic perspectives were never part of public school systems. And so that's why the parochial school systems, Catholicism, was so powerful in Rhode Island and in almost all metropolitan areas in the United States because uh, Catholics were really persona non grata, Uh, at least their ideas about lots of things were. So... um, but a uh, famous story, at least in our family, my mother tells my story. My Aunt Jackie, your name's actually Marie Jacqueline, uh, they can remember being five years apart. My mother was in like first or second grade. And you had to begin the day with the Lord's Prayer, the King James Version with the doxology on it, mm-hmm. um, and then say the 23rd Psalm. But my mother and my aunt were specifically told by the teacher that they could not say the Hail Mary about that yeah so that I mean and again we're not talking about prehistoric times here we're talking about you know uh 10 years before i was born
0: i think that really speaks to how quickly our culture has changed
1: right well when you think about it that's early 50s in 1960 john kennedy was elected president of the united states and those old enough and still alive know that the major issue of that election was that kennedy was a catholic
0: yeah. yeah and uh
1: uh, you know, uh, Smith had been nominated twice to be president, uh, mayor of New York City in the 20s, and, but no Catholic had been close to being elected president of the United States. Uh, you we know, are a second one now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh,
1: which is interesting. I don't, I don't go into that. Uh, right yeah, now.
0: that's a conversation for, another, for another day. Time.
1: So um, my life was was um, was, you know, my grandparents lived beside us. Second cousins across the street, famous Smith wrestlers of Coventry, and, uh, um, and it was a lovely way to grow up. I didn't, I didn't know any different. I didn't even know we were poor. I, I mean, I had no idea, because everybody was around us. Was
0: yeah. life was simple.
1: Yeah, but we, had, we had a. Uh, I, I had a kid. I went, a young man. I went to uh, uh, kindergarten with. and he, he lived down in Arcadia. You know what Arcadia was, right? Yeah. He lived in a Greyhound bus, an abandoned Greyhound bus. Wow. And uh, I remember, I, I can't, my father probably brought me as comfort to him but as he was president or vice president of the time of the town council. He had been ordered by the state to go remove the child from, and I can remember that going in and they lived in this bus. No, obviously no facilities Not or anything, anything else. Right. And that was just, it wasn't, So radical where I thought much about it because the bus went by there every day and we picked up the kid in front of the Greyhound bus. Yeah, it was just a matter of fact. And at the end of Black Plain Road, you and I run up that, when you're running it coming up the hill, Black Plain Road down the bottom. Uh, There was another family that lived in an old yellow school bus there. And uh, I remember the Northrop family who was generational on and they had a child near my age they had dirt floor and no running water in their house and uh, they didn't wear shoes in the house hmm. and i didn't think anything about yeah. like it yeah it it seems almost fairy tale like i think to people today with our technology yeah. and the advancement of everything around us that you know a guy 59 grew up in that culture
0: yeah it's unimaginable to think about and now, uh, just to interject i'm curious at what point during your your childhood, your adult development, would you say you started taking Christian faith more seriously?
1: Well, it was always God was always real. It was serious because my parents took us every Sunday, and um, by the time I was uh, twelve, thirteen, it was a priest that I had. It was very. Fond of, I found him very inspirational. I'd say he's it, it, Father Edward Joseph Carr is the reason why I end up having a vocation. I just mm-hmm. found him just a fascinating man. I love the guy, and he was a terrific pastor. Um, I was just, it, it, it's you know, it, it's it's too stereotypical and sounds um, like a story. Like uh, I was, the, I was the good boy for mm-hmm. every family. The three of us, I was the middle child, I was the good boy. Which isn't totally true. I spent my life trying to actually let the truth be told that I didn't do everything perfect in my life and that uh, everything didn't come easy to me and that, um, like everybody, I had all all the struggles that everybody has growing up, adolescence, puberty. I was just like everybody else, but I was not really ever perceived that way. I was a good boy. He always does the right things and he's... um, and, uh, and I excelled at athletics. That was my, um, uh, I was obsessed with it from, from the earliest age. Uh, and, um, when I was in the second grade, we had our first field day. I don't know if you guys grew up having field. Oh day, yeah. Right. And so it was the first one that was, I remember in the first grade we had a field day, but it was like, more like a carnival. And the only race that we had was the three-legged race. You know what the three-legged race yeah. is? And I remember this guy, John Wood, this kid, he's only went to our school for a year or two and we ran to the three-legged race and you'd get a ribbon, right? The winners, wow, right? I dragged that kid so fast across the field, <laughs> right? Like the poor kid, lucky he's not crippled from time. And we won. And I can remember, you know, we got the blue ribbon and you got it given to you by the principal in front of the school. And I'm like, this is my thing, right? So then, literally from second, third, fourth grade, like field day, I would be thinking of field day from the first day of school. Like, and so, um, uh, you, I, I forget. I think you could be entered in three events and the second, third, fourth grade, I won all three events and won the award for winning the most ribbons. And so that was like, I was just totally driven by that. So then when I got to Metcalf in fifth grade, I don't know if you guys have had to do this, presidential physical fitness tests. It was a big deal in the in the, in the 70s, right? And it was, uh, you'd get a patch. It was very really hard to make it. You have, it was on a 0 to 100 scale, and you score 85 points in all six events to to get the award. And um, and I, I won it every year. I had the highest score, and I had the highest score in the state
0: wow.
1: on the physical fitness test when I was in the 7th and 8th grade. And, like, it, it was, and I was on the, in the eighth grade, I was, uh, well, I did it all four years, but I ran cross country. There's only four sports in junior high and in, in statewide. It was cross country, basketball, baseball, and track. And so I, I did all four of those things. Mm. And, and you know, cross country, I was fifth in the state. I was MVP of the basketball team, MVP of the baseball team, and I won the mile in the state track meet. And I had the highest score on the physical fitness test in the state. So it was like on top of the world. It, it was my world. Yeah. Like, it was my world. And I got it from my father. My father had introduced me to, he just grew up, he grew up, you know, in a small town. His graduating class was 38 kids in the mountains of New- in Colorado. And he was a sports nut and he just passed it on to me. And my father was the director of athletics. He started the whole athletic program in X West Greenwich, and ran a summer recreation program. Where Monday, Wednesday, and Friday is in the summer, once so school was out, all, all the way up through uh, Labor Day, kids could come back to Metcalf those three days a week. And we used the gym, you could play all your different sports and all this stuff. So I was enmeshed in the community mm-hmm. at, you know, my father, he, he ran the school bus. He had the school bus company, ran the school buses. He was on the town council. He was the athletic director and ran the recreation department. So it was like, that was my whole world.
0: Yeah, and not to go down a rabbit hole, but one thing that comes to mind when you bring up community is how foreign that is an experience now to oh. the majority of youth in today's America, and adults too, that we've lost the sense and the reality of local right. community.
1: You're talking Metcalf classes. I was the president of my eighth grade class. It was 120 kids in my class. But recreation would draw 300 kids a day. Can you imagine having an event today? That's Any Unimaginable. I mean, it's unimaginable. and they would, it, Because, A, there was nothing else to do, right? And parents mostly would all stay home. Moms would love to get the kids out of the house for those three or four hours a day, whatever it was, three days yeah. a week. So um, it, was a great, it was a great time to grow up for me. Um, my, my kids can't even, you know, I tell the stories. And, you know, my son, Donald, both of you guys know him. So he's like, oh, I don't want to hear that story again, right? Because it was yeah. just, it's such a different world. By the time Donald's going to Exeter West Greenwich High School, he graduated in fourteen. You graduated graduated in in fourteen, right? And um, Exeter, I remember reading this. uh, This was in the early two tens. Was the second most wealthy demographic in the state to Barrington, so it went from the one of the poorest, like it was like Central Falls, West Warwick. Exeter, that type of thing, to being second to Barrington in socioeconomics, especially from, you know, the barrier from 102, like Walla to East, just yeah. became big bucks. All big those far- big, all those farms got sold off, and, you know, four, five, $600,000 houses went in, and it, it's, it's an utterly different world. So when I went to the back, when you were in high school, and I was coaching track and field, and uh, uh, I, I was It was a. It took me a while to adjust to the fact that you know kids drove into school with Audis.
0: Yeah, that was just commonplace for us. Yeah, big homes, nice cars. Uh,
1: To go back to so faith was always just a part of our lives. It was like eating and going to church was. I didn't even realize that most people never went to church, especially uh, where I and the road I grew up on. It was mostly generic Yankee Protestants who didn't even like Catholics, so I, did, I, yeah. didn't, I didn't know that. And uh, so we were just church. It was just part of who we were. And I think it's the repetition, the liturgical constancy of it. It, it gets in your DNA. Even, you know, when your parents bring you to church, you'll learn even by osmosis. And that's why I have a great affinity to the liturgical traditions. I think yeah. they most effectively teach the Christian faith. If your parents are participating in it, that's key. If they just if you're, you're just a drop-off kid, you're not going to learn anything. Yeah, but that wasn't the case. With my, my my mother taught CCD. And my parent my father was the head of the board of trustees. They were involved in the local um, CYO, all of those things, and so uh, the key was my parents. Yeah, uh, in every aspect of our lives. Right. And thank God, my parents. None of the things that so many kids in the poorer places I grew up with. You know, we didn't have my father was an excellent father, my mother was a wonderful woman. There was no alcohol. We were a dry household. My parents never drank, never smoked. Um, it, it was just a virtuous place to, to live. And so
0: Thank God th- for that
1: those things rub off on you. Yeah. Right? My the biggest change in my life that happened was there was no high school. An Exeter the High School you guys went to was built in 1989, and I graduated in 1978 from the eighth grade, and I had all these accolades, and I was had been with all these kids since I was in kindergarten, and I applied to go to Bishop Hendrick in high school, which was emerging as the powerhouse, academic and athletic powerhouse that it is now. It was it was it was strong, but it's not like it is today. LaSalle was the dominant, but there's no chance I was going to Providence every day, so but I did not get accepted to Bishop Hendrickson. Hmm. And so I ended up going to Charahoe High School as I actually got to pay tuition to go to Cherahoe High School, um, which is 12 miles from my house. Um, And it was the hardest thing in my life because all these kids I grew up with and I had all this success and was, you know, I mean, been president of the class and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, I'm the only person. I didn't know anybody at Cherahoe High School. Yeah. And... But in retrospect, in God's providence, it was one of the greatest things that God ever allowed to happen in my life. I went to Charo, um and uh, a whole different phase of my life began and expanded my life. Cherahoe is the largest school district in Rhode Island. Cherahoe is an acronym, Charleston, Richmond, Hopkins. Yes. And um, it was built in 1960. Before that, they didn't have a high school either. You think about that. There was, there was no high schools in South County. There was South Kingston and Westerly. That was it. And it's just such a different world. Um, but as so I, I as times evolved at, at um Charahal, I ran cross country, played basketball and baseball my freshman year. As I told you, I was I did very I was tra- traveling and playing varsity as a freshman. I was the third in the state and freshman state cross country championships and was second place um, freshman finishes finished in state varsity championships. Um and I played Babe Ruth baseball. I played fall baseball. And, and I grew. I was very small. I was undersized. All the way through eighth grade, I was undersized. Very small. And then I grew. Uh, and then became like an average-sized high schooler. And uh, in sophomore year in cross-country, I started out, I'd played baseball all the way up until the beginning of um, the season. So I wasn't in shape to run. But as I got in better shape, I emerged as the best runner in in uh, our school and the best runner in South County, and and I was just on the cusp of being good enough to make all state. And all of a sudden, my mind started going in a different direction, and and I actually decided not to play basketball. End up running full time, which when you're 15 is like this major life decision, you know. But right. it it changed the whole course of my life because uh, even though I wasn't like physically built to be a runner, per se. I ended up excelling, and I was All-State, All-New England, All-American, and I ended up going to Orion Scholarship and so forth. And I was Athlete of the Year at in my high school, and uh, all kinds of things that were, all these accolades, which all kind of layered onto this idea that things came easy for Mark. He's a good boy. <laughs> Everything works out right for him, right?
0: Part but of he, the narrative, they gets created around each and every one of us absolutely
1: and, and it's 59 and it's still never really going away and it, it's both a good thing if it's a burden at the same time because this sex is I idea that you're kind of this perfect guy or perfect kid
0: people expect you to live up to their oh, expectations I, I, oh yeah no I,
1: and yeah and I found it very difficult at, at times in my life especially when I was struggling with all the issues that you do growing up with right uh, one of the great things is my—I met my wife at high school. We started dating when we were seventeen years old, and she's the only girl I've ever known. Right, and so that was one thousand four hundred years ago. That was uh, forty-two years ago this fall, and we've been married thirty—be thirty-six years uh, this year. So, but faith was just always a part of our life, and I—I I got involved in youth group and. and I would speak at uh, some youth rallies at the local CYO and stuff. And um, the Providence Visitor, which was the Catholic, I think it's called the Rhode Island Catholic now, uh, wrote an article on me when I was a senior in high school hmm. about my, because I uh, had a Bible reading program I was in and had talked about it in at the parish level to other kids. And uh, they came, So it was a front, I can't remember where it was, but it was a big half-page article about me, about my faith and my athletic accomplishment. And and I look back on that now and I'm thinking, and I can remember, you know, like like our priest was so proud that a local kid was doing that and my parents. But I'm thinking, I was just another layer (laughs) to to this other stuff that I would deal with in life. So the great crisis in my life was meeting my wife. Hmm. My wife is, at the time, her father was uh, associate pastor of a Pentecostal church, Assemblies of God. She, her grandfather was a free will Baptist pastor. Her, that would be her maternal grandfather. Her paternal grandfather was a Methodist elder. Um, her her oldest sister married uh, a minister, a Bible school <laughs> graduate, and when we started dating, uh, it was, and I had never experienced it. Uh, again, I, I didn't grow up in that culture in my household, and I didn't grow up in it in my interactions with Protestants. I didn't even know what the word evangelicals were at the time. But when I met my wife's family, the, the fact that I was a Catholic was a bad thing. And it was, it, it was an existential crisis for both of us because... I didn't understand that world, and she didn't understand my world. And the first time I went to the Pentecostal church, I was scared out of my mind. It was, I, you know, I imagine. speaking in tongues and people running around waving their hankies, and um, it just seemed like utter chaos to me. Um, and when she would come to Catholic mass, she thought she was in like a concentration camp or something, yeah. right? So and when you're 17 you're just not mature enough and you so you do a lot of you do you immediately go to how thick your blood is and defend your the culture that you grew up in so the biggest obstacle for us was that and it took us our whole maturation process uh, you know from getting out of high school into we dated all through college and um to the point, you know, but when we we're we're, we went five years to college, use all our athletic abil- uh, eligibility. My wife was a very good high school, college athlete. She was athlete of the year at Allen College, um, still holds track and field records there 35 years later. Um, but I, I had come to the conclusion, and she did, unless we could come to some type of agreement about Christian faith praxis we were not going to get married Hmm. and we act you know so we had like uh over the course of a year and a half like two stretches where we weren't together anymore because we couldn't but i loved her and love prevailed but uh, make a long story short we, we ended up looking for common ground and we ended up in the episcopal church
0: and so that, that's really the transition from your Catholic upbringing to yeah, and for the me, Anglican tradition. Yeah,
1: and so it was, and, and again, that's a lot of issues. I'm sure some of our audience is going to have issue with that. Uh, um, her parents, or her family, Anglicans were just like, you know, stones, not even half a stone's throw from Catholicism, as far as they were concerned, as they understood it, right? Yeah. It was just taking a rowboat across the Tiber and— uh, uh, the transition was much easier for me than it was for her. It's interesting now, all these years later. I said my, my wife's become so used to the Anglican synthesis that she's not nearly as comfortable going back now to mm-hmm. to evangelical traditions. When we we've, we've often done and visited and have I have loads of friends who are pastors in that tradition and still family members, obviously. Yeah. Um, so. um but all through college, I, I was when I wasn't sure we were going to get stay together. I I came down to three options. I was go, I was going to become a public school teacher, a state policeman, hmm. or I was going to go to Catholic seminary to become a priest. Uh, but love prevailed with my wife, and uh, then these other plans went into effect. But this c- calling from God and this desire to to learn more. And it was really fostered by, quite frankly, confrontation with my wife's family about being a Catholic. You know, I never told so No, I never heard from somebody that that you weren't a Christian because you were a Catholic. Hmm. When you're seventeen, that, that just does not register. It did not register. I'm like, okay, sure, but I, I didn't know what they were really saying. And then as the years rolled on, I figured out what all that meant, and it, it drove me. Uh, it's the best and worst thing that can happen to me is to get my ear up. My my Scott is yeah. Irish ear gets up and uh, I don't need a lot to be motivated and um, um, so I, I I learned and studied. So my, my, my undergraduate degree was in the sociology of religion and then I applied I ended up getting graduate scholarships to Providence College where I studied for, um, I did two full degrees there, yeah. a theology degree and a master's in biblical studies plus a whole lot of extra. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a 30, that, that's a 66 credit program. A 30 credit degree is 36 credit degree, but but I did 88 credits uh, in the same time allotted to get the degrees because it was free. Wow. And so for me, that yeah. meant take lots of courses and, uh, I think you know one summer in six in six weeks I took 18 credits including greek and and finished a dissertation in six weeks I, I literally slept like 3 or 4 hours a day wow and um, but it it's everything I've learned about life from athletics to uh, faith it's hard work god always on his hard work Hard work always produces dividends that both benefits you but brings glory to God. And so, uh, the, the the gift about going to Providence College and doing all that work so hard, which uh, just had never been done. Nobody had ever even been earned. Nobody had ever had two grad, uh, graduate scholarships. I was the first one wow. to ever. I couldn't believe it. Uh, they asked me to stay on, and, I, and the, technically I wasn't a Catholic. I was the only non-Catholic there on scholarship.
0: About that yeah
1: so it was um, it was a fascinating time but because I did all that work I, went, I had to go to Yale at this point I was in the ordination process in the Episcopal Church and you have to finish at least have a cap year at an accredited Anglican seminary and so I ended up going to Berkeley Divinity School at Yale which is part of Yale Divinity School it's a consortium to it and uh, so I only had to do a, a single year there this was in 1992 but even then, it cost thirty thousand dollars. So, going to Providence College and doing the equivalent of a, more than a doctorate degree, plus twenty-eight credits, was um, saved me about seventy-five thousand dollars that I would have had to pay out if I had, had had to have gone to Yale for a full three years, yeah, for like an MDiv program or something like that. So. So that, that's how we ended up in the Episcopal Church. By God's grace, we ended up. I mean, I didn't know all the politics at the time. We ended up in the most conservative, be considered evangelical, St. Andrew and St. Philip at the time. Yeah, this was in 1988, 89, which was a blessing because it was a place where it was Orthodox, um, very sacramental, and um, it, it worked for us and where our faith grew and uh, Allah my vocation was born out of that experience.
0: Yeah, a long winding road and that was eventually where our paths crossed later on after so you had you had left and then you went to St. you were at St. Mary's after that?
1: Well, I was after I graduated from uh, Yale I, I had I had another process of exams. I, I won't go into. There was lots. There was yeah. lots. Lots of battles. Lots of heartache. Lots of things. I don't want to go into all that. But um, eventually, I was ordained a deacon in December of 1994. But uh, at first, it wasn't. At first, I wasn't forwarded for ordination. But the chair of Anglican Studies at the Yale Divinity School, God rest his soul, wonderful man, Doctor Rowan Greer, Reverend Rowan Greer. Um, the curacy, assistant to the priest at Christ Church Westerly, which is one of the five, in those days, we called them cardinal parishes, the five largest parishes in the diocese, they, they had clout, veritas. He says, Mark, the curacy's open at um, Christ Church Westerly. I, want you to, I think you should apply. I'm going, Rowan. And I was in a real crisis in my life. I just dedicated the last five years of my life, and I wasn't, sure i was going to be forwarded and i wasn't going to be forwarded because of my positions right my positions on the ordination of women on abortion authority of scripture and this is a long time ago this is 30 years ago I mean, <laughs> um good ill it's good in my opinion i don't move when it comes to what i think is true i don't care who what anybody said doesn't matter um God's will. I wasn't gonna be ordained. Uh, God was gonna use me somewhere else. Long story short, so he goes, "No, He goes, write a letter, guy, Father, Father Bobby Anthony." All right. So, in the, so I do like a, would be a modern day CV, right? So I sent the thing. Guy calls me. I'm at. I'm finishing my last semester of seminary. Not even know if I'm gonna be ordained. He was. He was. God. He just died recently. I love the guy. The guy was just. I could go on all day just trying to explain Bobby Anthony's personality. He goes, ah father graham recommends you and bob was a, a, a new priest himself he had a little parish in west haven and rowan while he was a professor at yeah would go and help bob on the weekends much like i've done with you
0: yeah
1: and so he came he came to love rowan grant he was a you know high-powered theologian tremendous greek scholar church fathers just tremendous greek scholar and uh ah Rowan graham recommends you i go yeah he goes oh come down for an interview so I go down, I'm there for a half hour, the guy just hires me. I'm not even, wow. I haven't been afforded for a nation. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're assistant director. the rector. I go, what does that mean? Well, oh, you're my assistant. I go, I'm not ordained. He goes, ah, we'll take care of that.
0: <laughs> Details. I, I
1: didn't know about the power of a card, rector at the right. time, right? So that was June. He hires me in December, I'm a deacon, and the following June, I'm a priest, and I was, I was assistant to the rector for three and a half years in Wesley, and it was just a wonderful training ground. Uh, then it was a still very much an Orthodox parish. I'm not sure of its status these days. I doubt it's what it was when I was there. And after that, I went to be the rector at St. Mary's in Warwick Neck, which was um, a high church, Anglo-Catholic parish. And I was rector there for six years and had a very, very enjoyable time, very successful. We, uh, the parish grew doubled and all that type of stuff and we had uh, tons of young people and roger came to be my youth pastor we had a hundred kids on friday nights wow it was like complete, another unimaginable reality complete chaos <laughs> but when i got there the, the church had like 45 people in it the budget was like fifty thousand dollars and then you know we were, when i left we were a hundred church only sat about 125 but we were averaging for two services about 150 people i think the budget was like whatever it was I forget it was just under two hundred thousand dollars or something when um, that was a great time and then um, then I went to the valley to to um, commentary then the church of senior in st Philip yeah and you guys I went there in uh, January of 2004 so you guys would have been what one
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would have been uh, a little older than that but yeah <laughs> I was uh nine or ten
1: yeah so you were like seven or eight years old when I was so that's how I got to commentary right? and
0: the rest was history. Long history. Yeah. That
1: right? might be another podcast into itself.
0: Yeah, there's definitely no time for all the details today. But yeah. I think that's a good crossover point to explain really how I got here, where I yeah. came from. But I think this is a good spot to take a break. So we'll take a few minutes to stretch our legs and we'll be back in a few minutes thank you you. and we're back from our brief break we just finished talking about mark's personal history and part of his faith journey really again we're in conversation about who we are how we got here getting to know each other better introducing ourselves once again to our listeners and viewers so we'll transition now i'll speak a little bit about myself feel free to jump in if you have any questions my history is just a little bit shorter than yours but maybe not by much oh half about half give or take <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so we can we can start the timer and see how close that falls but i think for me you mentioned a lot about Exeter, west greenwich and by god's providence that's really where our paths intertwine to an extent right myself growing up being raised in west greenwich born in Rhode Island, and the transformation between what you describe as your childhood experience and the experience of myself and my brother, our fearless producer, mm-hmm. growing up in West Greenwich is worlds apart. Night and day. Night and day, where you describe a an experience of rural poor, we had an experience that really was... Stereotypically middle class and within the context of a wealthy socioeconomic status and culture. Mm-hmm. So, by the time that we made it to high school, Exeter, West Greenwich, and even just going through the public school system, most of our friends, I would say, were pretty wealthy even compared to us. So, big houses, nice cars.
1: It was really it was a private, really a norm. It was a quasi private school almost
0: it really did have that atmosphere like, it was like right like the type yeah 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 maybe without some of the uh, yeah right the stereotypes that come, exactly. come with that lifestyle exactly exactly but really going all the way back to my childhood again i think i consider myself ourselves very fortunate in that stable nuclear family two parent household within the context of a neighborhood not like a gated community, but just a neighborhood Mm -hmm. with kids. There were probably 10 to 12 kids total within however many years of us. And I can just remember we would go outside and spend most of the day outside if the weather was nice and do all manner of things, playing basketball or running around, riding bikes. And even back then, early 2000s, but more so now, that experience of, just childhood freedom and actually living life out in the world, getting dirty, running around, interacting with other kids without a screen in between you is something that I'm incredibly grateful for and was absolutely formative in my early childhood growing up. Mm -hmm. So praise God for that. Incredibly fortunate. Our parents loved us very much speaking more to where we came from in terms of faith. Went to church most Sundays. Parents took us because it was important. It was the right thing to do. And as with so many of us, our faith journey was just that. It was a journey. There was no Damascus Road experience, but really started, I would I would wager, in earnest for my parents when we were born. We were baptized in the Episcopal Church. My, my dad was raised Episcopal, and so... We were brought up in that tradition as well. In terms of what I can remember, my childhood always went to St. Andrew and St. Philip and Coventry. And like I mentioned, that was where our paths crossed. We went regularly or semi-regularly. It was something we did. We didn't talk about God a ton at home, but went to Sunday school. And it was important because God was important. It was important to know God, and it was the right thing to do. And then, like we were saying, 9 or 10 years old for me, this crazy guy comes in to St. Andrew and St. Philip and starts preaching the gospel a lot more loud. He yells at us a lot, and his sermons starts requiring things of us to live out our faith or something like that. And I would say that's really that first turning point where I think for many of us who were part of the St. Andrew and St. Philip culture, before then, looked at the Christian experience through a new lens and really gained a new energy and a motivation and an understanding that there's a lot more to the Christian experience than just going to church, receiving the sacraments, and then going home and going about the rest of your life and checking off the box because, well, you did that. That makes you a good person. You're a good citizen. You're part of the episcopal breed you're in heaven baby you're you're, you're, good. you're on your way yeah. you're on your way yeah you've got a one-way ticket so <laughs> that was really the first turning point for me i would say but again like you mentioned before all credit to our parents because being brought up in a liturgical tradition you can only make it so far as your parents participate and also make it incumbent upon you as you grow older despite your complaints and your objections to make you go to church and to go to Sunday school and to sit and to listen to the teaching. And even if you're paying half attention, that stuff sinks in. Yeah. And that's so important when you're talking about going through a public school system and absorbing all the other junk that the world is throwing at you. So going back to the public school system for me, my identity was always centered around my brains right, right because believe it or not i wasn't very big growing up no I'm way i'm still waiting for my second growth <laughs> spurt to kick in but i didn't have the natural athletic prowess that i always hoped i would at least not in the sports that people really cared about basketball mm-hmm. baseball certainly not football that was never on the radar for me so it was always a work ethic thing for me. And I think it was especially instilled by my father, who, you know, as our as our deacon works incredibly hard yes, and all to the glory of God. And so that's absolutely due to him. And through the hard work and just applying myself to studies throughout school, it really didn't come all that hard to me. It was really just a matter of understanding that. My education was important and applying myself to it. And then the rest came naturally after that. And obviously, there's different experiences for different people. Some people can try really hard and academics doesn't come to them quite so easily. But for me, I just took a pride, I think, in the academic achievement. And that started to take on a life of its own as years went on. You go through elementary school and junior high and, and high you're school. the smart kids. Exactly. You yeah. you get labeled as a smart kid. You're expected to know yep. all the answers, and that's really where you get pigeonholed into. And you take that on, and I, I largely embraced it because, mm-hmm. for me, you get into the valedictorian conversation. It becomes a friendly competition. You make friends around your studies because now you're taking the same classes. You're taking honors classes and an AP curriculum, and you're embedded within that same sort of race. Did you feel pressure to
1: become a valedictorian?
0: There was definitely pressure. I. It's funny because there was a choice that I made in ninth grade when we were electing to take our first slate of classes, and I made a conscious decision to not take all honors initially. I knew that I was interested in the STEM fields, so science, technology, engineering, and math, I wanted to be a math and science guy. I always wanted to be a scientist. So I did not elect to take honors history, not because I thought history was unimportant, but I wasn't sure what to make of the honors workload throughout high school. So I wanted to make sure that I had the time to focus on the classes that I felt were most important to me. So we get into that first semester of ninth grade and i'm in the base level history course whatever you want to call it not trying to be pejorative in any way and i still remember we we had our first essay it was on the fall of the roman empire five paragraph essay and we had gone through the unit in the textbook and we were assigned i can't remember if it was in class or a take-home essay but we basically had to write five paragraphs synthesizing summarizing the reasons for why the roman empire collapsed and of course in the textbook it it's laid out very clearly for you in a very simplified way for a high school student that you've got your cultural reasons and your economic reasons and your political reasons so it's already kind of pre-formulated for you but it just clicked for me and i did what i always did because writing also came easily to me so i just Pumped out an essay that I didn't think was anything special, and so when I hand, handed it in, I don't know, a day or two later, the teacher pulls me aside. He's like, uh, You're Nathan, we've... I don't think you belong in this <laughs> class. There's nothing nothing against any of the other kids, but I had to give you a hundred on this essay, and I think you would be much more challenged in the honors curriculum. Yeah. And so after a few weeks in the non honors course for history, it was bumped into the honors course against my will. So in a sense, and you know, parallels to the priesthood too, in in a sense. We can get to that later. I wasn't really seeking it for myself initially, but then once I was in it, it was like, All right, let's go. I'm gonna go pedal to the metal and see what I can do. And eventually that really became a part of that academic identity and and took on a life of its own. So there there were a couple friends of mine we were always pretty close in the running for that valedictorian position and now i'm going on and on and anyone who knows me is going to be like oh here he goes again talking about all this nerd stuff but you know it was fun and in comparison to maybe your experience growing up in public school obviously everyone has labels everyone has their own friend group but it maybe wasn't as concrete as it was 30 or 40 years prior so there was maybe, I would call it class mobility, or mobility in between, mm. I felt, different friend groups. And that was something that I took pride in anyways, that I had friends who were nerds, I had friends who were on sports teams, and I made friends with people who really didn't fit into any of those other categories. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was unique to me, maybe it wasn't. And there's was probably a combination of, of both of those things. But your character, that's why you
1: did those things.
0: And it was something I think that I was intentional about. Absolutely, is, you have to be. No no coincidence then that I ended up in, in Christian ministry. But going through graduation of high school, graduated valedictorian, and that was uh, something that I was incredibly proud of, getting to go up into graduation in the URI auditorium and giving Great. It valedictorian Great speech, speech, giving credit to God, throwing YouTube hit. him out there. You could say that. Not as big a hit as the podcast, but for a 17-year-old, 18-year-old out high school. I was was like a proud
1: semi-parent that day up in the balcony, I remember so well.
0: Yeah, that was an incredible day. And keeping with the theme of being a nerd and, again, wanting to go into the sciences, eventually made the decision to go to Worcester Polytech in Massachusetts, which was another life-defining moment for me. I had a moment of crisis between choosing to go to URI and choosing to go to WPI. It had come down to the two. And, of course, the sad state of education today, even graduating valedictorian and being involved with sports, with the running I'll get to in a second, URI offered me a, a relative pittance of a scholarship to go yeah, there. Right. And so the, the cost between URI and getting, a, I would say, a superior engineering experience at WPI were almost negligible. Obviously, WPI was more expensive, but eventually, I called my paternal grandmother for for advice, and in that moment of crisis, ended up making the decision to go to Worcester Polytech, and the rest was history from there. The other aspect of really finding myself and forming my identity was getting involved with long distance running. So I. Had done the little league thing for a long time. My dad was a coach and thankful for that. But just my talents didn't lie there. So that didn't work out. Always played rec soccer and basketball. And I did soccer competitively. Enjoyed both. Basketball was fun. My size didn't do me any favors. So Mm -hmm. that uh, didn't extend beyond rec league. And then for soccer, I had more of a shelf life there because it turned out that I could run and run and run and not get tired. So was able to hold my own in JV in high school and um, continue to do competitive, but got into track and field starting in eighth grade. And then uh, met your son Donald's when you guys moved back to St. A&P. And knowing someone who got into long distance running was more of a motivation to try it out for myself. So I had done soccer for a couple of years There were no prospects of me making the varsity team and i can remember our coach for soccer was starting to get us to train over the summer to just get out and do something start running because you're all fat and out of shape when you get back for double sessions in august so run on the weekends or something get your conditioning up and so i was hanging out with donald and we went out for one of those runs in probably june or july i remember being on that run yeah what was that probably three miles five miles we went Maybe maybe even six because we, we started did. we started out on Austin Farm and we went down cemetery. to the cemetery yeah. did a loop around the cemetery and came back and yeah just what was, was you a that? breeze remember what I said to you that day? so you told me that the way I ran my form you could put a stack of books on my head and it wouldn't move it would just stay right in place and but you were the first person I think to really step out and recognize this talent of mine other than oh well you're he's a nerd, he's a smart kid, he's valedictorian, and so that really stuck with me, and that was definitely a a defining transformative moment. Yeah,
1: I I watched your style, right, efficiency is everything in running, and uh, I'm saying to you, I said, Nathan, you're wasting your time playing soccer, you're already a first-team all-division runner. That's right. I said, you'll be a first-team all-division runner, and you're like, I will be! What? And of course you were, right right off the bat, right? What are you
0: talking about? Yeah. (laughs) So that played into the whole decision process and then eventually chose to switch from soccer to cross country and changed life. Yeah. Changed my life. Regretted none of it. That community of long distance runners really helped shape my character and, and rounded me out beyond just my studies and yeah, just the character of long distance runners. Totally affable. You can plug in with a long distance running team at basically any school among your peers of your age. And it's like, you've always known each other.
1: Yeah, we talked about it, too. For you going WPI, you, not only you long-distance runners with all those personality traits, and you're all nerds. Every one of you, like, have IQs of 6,000, right? And so I always find out our journeys are so different because I was just a jock in high school. I was a m- mediocre student, and I, I had no idea I was even going to study when I went to URI. I just know I wanted to run, and, like, that was what I was at. And I, I didn't become a good student till graduate school. Yeah, and I had to learn what I wanted to study, and then when I found out what I liked to study, then I became a terrific student. I graduated magna cum laude in graduate school three times, right? So, but you were, you were just this prolific student from kindergarten, <laughs> kindergarten on, right? So, yeah,
0: it's really cool to watch your journey, though. Oh well, thanks. It was really cool. Yeah, I I thank God immensely for things happening the way that they did, but um.
1: And it's so not the uh, audience is really a kid, but it was so unique. I mean, I've watched you grow as a person, and you, and your cool brother too, I became a quality weight thrower at what uh, Exeter and, uh, but to be somebody's priest, then a bishop, and then their coach, it, it's it's so unique. It, yeah, it's a unique connection I have to you guys, you know, and uh, it's uh, as I cherish it. It's really cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah, praise God for that. It's totally and it's only possible if you're if you remain embedded within a local community that's centered around yeah. around your church. So all glory to God for that. But so that that really all converges on my experience at WPI and it's funny how the engineering STEM nerd intersects with distance running because it seems like they're all the same in that regard. But um yeah, WPI was this totally transformational experience for me being around so many like-minded peers who are embedded in science and math and engineering. And then being able to plug in with the varsity D three cross country and track and field teams made so many awesome friends there. And then uh, even more formative than that was getting plugged in with campus ministry. And that takes me back to the faith element of my life where we had this first sort of maturation of faith when you came and joined A and P, and we eventually became Church of the Apostles. And I would say, faith was important to me. God was important to me. I understood how it worked. Didn't really start taking it seriously until I got confirmed, which again, credit to my parents, mm-hmm. credit to the eldership and the leadership. We we'll let you. We we'll let you time. sneak through. Let it. Let me sneak through. But <laughs> it wasn't. It was clear to those of us who were getting confirmed during the heyday at the time that confirmation, this wasn't the typical Catholic Church confirmation that all of our friends were getting pumped through the CCD factory and then you get confirmed and God gives you a big stamp on your forehead and you're good to get into heaven and then you never go to church again.
1: You would, I think we had, you had good interview with us. As
0: I recall. Yeah, we had to do interviews mm-hmm. with uh, each of the elders and go through the interview process, and I can't remember if we had to take classes or or something like that but it yeah it was no joke and you guys put us through our paces so that really i think that moment helped me turn toward thinking about my faith more seriously now it was a night and day it was always a was always a process and i think even though i took my faith more seriously once i graduated high school And transition into college especially during those later years where I was focused on my studies and focused on getting valedictorian and running in high school it was still more of a personal relationship with God and Jesus mentality than it was that plus being embedded within Anglican heritage and Anglican culture so all of that stuff now that I'm back within the anglican tradition i can see how it got embedded in the back of my mind but i didn't really recognize it as being there and so that this has become evident to me reflecting now on my faith journey through college where i got involved with christian bible fellowship which shout out to all you guys who are listening best friends that we could have ever had still good people awesome people um still stay in touch with many of them and it was such a blessing to be embedded amongst a community of Christian believers who were convictional Christians from all sorts of denominations and backgrounds who just wanted the gospel to be spread across this secular pagan campus. And the remarkable thing was that it was an independently led. Right. So we were not affiliated with any formal campus ministry. Now, now we were we had a relationship with the navigators, so our mode of ministry was very similar to that of the Navigators, yeah. which is you know discipleship, discipleship, yeah. discipleship, which I think is really important for students at that age. And we're going to get into evangelism in a little bit, but it was really eye-opening for me to see the power of one-on-one discipleship in helping to form Christian conscience and helping to raise up new believers and also in converts as well, that you're, you can't just throw a Bible at someone and expect them to come to Christ. But I got involved with campus ministry, eventually um, joined the leadership team of CBF, and yeah, it was all joy. We did, we organized rides to churches, we did prayer events, we, but I think most importantly, it provided us a community of like-minded Christian yeah. believers to hang out and understand that we're not alone in the midst of a college campus, and that there was a higher calling to what we were doing.
1: I always smile about your, your affiliation with them because you had me come speak to that group. That's right. And it uh, was one of the most enjoyable nights I can remember in some of the many times I spoke to groups over the thirty-plus years. And it was, I just, I just saw the smile about that night because it was so memorable for me. I. I don't know if you remember, I was like, you you were doing um, fruits of the spirit, right? And we're on the last one, self control. And I was thinking, college students and self control—that's that, a good topic, right? Yeah. And, um But I remember, I, I think I started off saying like, first of all, I want to tell you, I, you know, I've been in the ministry a long time. I have four degrees. Uh, I've been a priest and a bishop. I go, I've never been intimidated by so much intellect in my life. Yeah. It was like. Yeah. It was like you know, every one of you scored more on half of your SATs than I scored on mine combined, you know. So yeah. it was like, uh, but it was a lovely night. It was just a lovely night. And to see all these people so gifted intellectually who committed to Christ yeah. was just such an encouragement.
0: Yeah, and praise God, they continue to this day going strong. And and your wedding, you got these, like guys, these people growing. at all your weddings. Yeah. There's like floods of them. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it was, it's a beautiful thing, but... So really, in terms of my identity of faith, Anglicanism versus, not versus, but moving from Anglicanism then into the context of the college campus, we obviously there's no Anglican there's no Anglicans on campus there's no Anglican churches nearby, so you just really go to whatever feels like the best fit. And we had gone to, uh, like a non-denominational. Uh, but Baptist-style church, which I have a great affection for still, uh, Hope Chapel, and really enjoyed it there. But over the course of the four years of my college experience, was really plugged into a more non-denominational evangelical culture, Mm -hmm. and so not to say that I forgot where I came from, but my faith in theology was really shaped by that environment for four years. And I, I would say I was much more of a, a Calvinist, maybe not a five-point Calvinist, but because, there was, because I had an instinct for the tradition and the sovereignty of God and the weightiness that came with my time at Apostles underneath the eldership there throughout my formative experience. And now that wasn't there anymore because... It's so different in the evangelical context that i really latched on to the teachings of the reformed church yeah, just well, through the thank uh, god they were there though. oh yeah and i i don't regret any of it um it's through the the ministries such as ligonier and, and mm-hmm. all these guys you got the pipers and the scrolls and you were a scroll
1: expert for a while I, yeah i remember talking yeah to and
0: i still i still love scroll but um it, it's just funny how you, your faith journey takes all these twists and turns but yes really gone in the other direction since then now graduating college coming back and we plant holy communion anglican church and by necessity end up in ordained ministry this was not something that i suck sought not suck, sought out so, yeah. not something that i sought out that could be a later in the, interpretation yeah, of your experience we can, uh, <laughs> we can clip that out yeah <laughs> That'll be a fun short for Josh. probably probably um, getting a chuckle out of that. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, he does suck. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we had planted Holy Communion, and out of necessity I got ordained, and it wasn't something that I sought for myself out of pride. It's funny, like you told me and Chad told me, or you told Chad, God always gets his man. Mm-hmm. And so just like with the honors curriculum, where I wasn't really seeking valedictorian for myself at the time, It was really a matter of, I wanted to do the ministry that God was calling me to do, and prior to Holy Communion, I wasn't sure what that looked like, and then it became very clear that he was calling me to ordain ministry. And it was very closely linked to my academic endeavors, because speaking always came easily to me, writing came easily to me, teaching is always a great joy.
1: Well, you, yeah, I mean, I say these things not because these are hard to hear, because... uh... I've heard them in different contexts, not for the same ones you have, but you're a prodigy. So when you're a prodigy, it's hard. (laughs) We expect you just to be able to do anything, and it's just gonna be easy, right? And uh, as you're learning in ministry, ministry's hard. And um, your first few years, you're a wonder boy. And I remember when Chad was your age, Chad's a friend of ours who was a presbyter with me, Twenty years ago, and is now in Florida pastoring a church. And um I said, you, "You're not the wonder boy for very long. When you blink, you're 40 years old." Yeah. Right. And and when you're not just on somebody's staff, but you're in charge, the buck stops at your desk. You know. So when you're working for a, a bishop or a superintendent, whatever you want to call them, you're not really the one who's on the on the. You're not on the hook, right? Yeah. Also, when you realize you're on the hook, it's. And yeah, you know, you're learning those things, and they're pain And a, a veteran can only tell you they're coming. You just have to live through them and, and navigate your way through them. And that uh, could seem cold and cruel by your mentor, but that's that's how ministry works.
0: Yeah, it's how ministry works. It's how so many things work. You life. can only learn life. You can only learn so much by listening right. and studying. You have to also learn by doing. Right. 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 And. Uh, that's a good transition into, okay, well, how did I prepare for ministry? And I think this is really instructive for what I see as the vision of ministry, especially in, in for small churches and, and areas like in New England going forward, where I didn't go to a seminary, I didn't get a formal ministry or divinity degree, but everything I learned in preparation for the priesthood was through one-on-one mentorship with you. And we met for hundreds and hundreds of hours, and that was through an intentional decision of, Especially with the state of secondary education and the costs, and it just wasn't going to be worth it to go to a PC and shell out probably what two hundred grand, or, or you know, anywhere, least, anywhere, 160 anywhere, 160 any, anywhere else. I remember
1: we were talking to Gordon Conwell. Gordon Conwell's fucking going to be open in a year yeah. or two, right? So, yeah, we, we don't. I don't have to supersede you here, but I, have been on this Bailey well, as you know for twenty plus years. That the future, the church is back to the future. Uh, the seminary, seminary system is not even 200 years old. People think it's, you know, the apostles invented it. You yeah. No, clergy in almost all their traditions, even in the Catholic Church until, you know, the late medieval period, were, were mentored into ministry. Yeah. And it's an absolute economic necessity by vocation and this abandonment of this idea that you go off to these institutions spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and then make 20 grand working part time for the next, it's, I, I don't even have to prove my point anymore. because It's just going to happen. So your experience of being, a, I would argue too. And you can, you can tell me, I, you, you're going to learn a lot more. Now, first of all, the person who's going to mentor you or, or the persons have to have the acumen to do it, right? This can't be some person who thinks they are a prophet and is going to, uh, but you, you learn a lot more one-on-one with a person over hundreds of hours than you're ever going to learn in a seminary sitting.
0: Absolutely. It's much more personalized. Yes, And I, I think by extension, it fits within that model of discipleship that just as it's the church's responsibility to raise up the next generation of believers, it should also be the church's responsibility to raise up their next generation of leadership if they are going to pass on The faith to the next generation within their own congregation.
1: Yeah, you and I—I said that you've heard me say it in a hundred sermons and yak about all the time. It's like, what? What do the people think was biblical? How do they? How do they think this really happened in history? Just
0: drop out of the sky, right?
1: You know, after the apostles are like, "All you boys go to seminary," yeah, right, (laughs) and then you come back and you'll be whatever. And I was just like, no, it didn't work that at all, and it's not—it's not working anymore either, not efficiently.
0: and so i think these things will bear themselves out by necessity like you said both with the the personal um theological training but also with uh bivocational ministry that again it's just the church is going to be more and more persecuted churches are going to get smaller but they'll be more tight-knit yep they'll have higher convictions and they're just not going to have the money to pay a full-time pastor a full salary and benefits. And
1: no, so, and, and facilities and, and facilities all, all these physical stuff. plants, all this stuff. No,
0: that's right. And so these are conversations that I have with with fellow ministers all the time, and I think there's definitely a growing realization that that's the reality. Uh, but I think there's still many out there who are still living in yeah the I mean, previous 20, reality. Of Twenty years ago, Christian culture.
1: I mean, even when I proposed, you know, when when Saint Andrew, Saint Philip left the Episcopal Church, became Church of the Apostles, and Propose these changes in polity and the future direction. I mean, yeah, because of my persuasiveness, these things prevail, but I think most people thought I was completely nuts.
0: I think most people still think you're <laughs> completely nuts. <too. laughs> right.
1: Right. So they're like, oh, yeah, right, dude. Right. And, um, we were ahead of the curve on that. Yeah, so, um,
0: for sure. And, so that, that really brings me to where I am today and just moving forward. Again, it was always with my training, the mindset of augmenting my spiritual development so that I can best do the call of ministry that God wants me to do wherever wherever he has me ends up, whether it's at... Holy Communion or this place or that place because, again, it's just a reality of bivocational ministry. And you and have, to be very you got fluid. These, you have to be fluid. Your you life's going to be, gonna be very fluid, Yeah, And you have to be able to balance providing for your family and doing what's best while also um, being responsible and accountable to the ministry that God has entrusted you to. So, nothing easy there, but it's it doesn't feel like work. It's all a joy. Praise God for that.
1: You know, that's a paradox that That is very hard to convey because you deal with, you know, I've been a priest almost 30 years and you deal with with everything. And as I've said to you, um, you can't deal, you know, in three years in part-time ministry with, you know, 30 people and accumulate the same experience that I would have in two years pastoring 300 people, 75 hours a week, right? And so inevitably... Ministry it is all joy, but inevitably you deal with domestic violence horrific things Uh, We don't need to go into all the horrific things, but it's a long list uh, suicides um, You know death of infants Besides all the other things that people have in their long prayer list with their big amen at the end Um, But through it all When you're God's man, there's always joy. Yeah, because he who called you is faithful he'll bring it to completion it's like you, you you said about I said to chad he was just about your age when uh, when I first encountered him and talked to him about vocation and you know and I said God always gets his man and I said so if you feel called for ministry I go you know what you should do and, you know the answer, I go run in the other direction as fast yeah. as you can <laughs> because if God's going to get you he's going to get you yeah, because God's God's like with Jacob; he can just reach down and dislocate your hip whenever yeah. <laughs> he wants, it right? Like and he'll get you. But when he gets you, that, that there's something so secure in the sovereignty of God about that that you you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And despite all these things that he come your way, he equips you to deal with them. Right? It doesn't mean people are going to like you. It doesn't mean you're going to be popular but God's going to honor your faithfulness and your fidelity right. to the gospel. And that, that's the hardest thing, I think, for anybody who's being, feeling called to ministry. They, they, they think it's idyllic right, or romantic. And especially when they're young or a prodigy or they're uh, they, the other side, not that you're not these things, but these people who have, you know, they're, they're very good-looking, they're charismatic, they have the right style, they wear the right ripped jeans, they sit on the stool the right way, all that stuff. That stuff only going to carry you for a very finite, you know, finite period of time. Right? It has to be, yeah. it has to be character and quality, and substance.
0: And it's just like the lesson that we learned in the middle of Lent last season, where the Lord sees not as man sees, speaking to the prophet Samuel, and you have this contrast between Saul, who's this tall, right. swarthy good looking guy right. who everyone wanted to be king and then you right. have this scrawny runt david who's been rolling around in the dirt and the youngest of the family the ruddy one yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah that, that's excellent that's very very true yeah it's um it's a great life it's and i think you and i we both i mean i've been at this a long time and i still i, I don't get victory over it in a sense I, I it's like i don't understand why christians aren't joyful
0: yeah,
1: right. Because they certainly expect us to be joyful and to to convey hope to them under all circumstances, even when they're pissed off at us, right? But it's like, but that that's the greatest dearth in the church is that Christians who claim to be regenerate people just don't radiate joy about being children of God. Yeah, and there's something drastically wrong with that.
0: Right? Yeah, there really and,
1: is. And so that's our greatest challenge in this. A total, utter chaos. We live in a banana republic right now. And the greater church has become a banana republic. And so God's men, good men, we have to stay faithful and true as hard as it is. As hard as it is. We need each other. We have to confide with each other. We have to admit to each other how vulnerable, how weak we are, how sinful we are. Pray with each other. Confess our sins to each other. And then and then look to each other for the strength and confidence we need to keep to go forward. Um, otherwise, the devil just can't wait to grip you.
0: Right? Yeah, we can't do it without the fellowship of other no. believers and other ministers of the gospel. Right. And I'll finish by just sharing the last part of who I am, how I got here, you mentioned by vocational ministry. That, again, came out of my studies at Worcester Polytech. Studied biomedical engineering, graduated with a bachelor's in that. Studied some Spanish, too. But most important... Might as well. Might as well while I'm there. (laughs) Most importantly, met my wife at college. The lovely Ryan. Love of my life. And we met freshman year. Met within the first week or two, actually. We lived in the same dorm on separate floors. So they would do one male, female, male, female throughout the building that we lived in. And I was one of those love at first sight. Just, you just, you see a person and you just have, have a feeling. Yep. Um, Went out on a, on a date or two uh, early on, just, just for the sake of Mm -hmm. learning about another person and, and seeing what God might have in store. And the rest was history. And he's, he's been faithful to us and, there's really, no words that can describe my gratitude for having such a faithful uh, yeah, no, partner she, by she, my side. She's terrific. she's terrific, terrific young lady. Yeah. And so, yeah, by she, by God, well,
1: both of you guys, uh, God brought these lovely ladies into your life yeah. in college, and uh, that that is just such a gift. Just, it's no accident. It's providence.
0: That's right. That brought all by things. God's providence this stuff about. And so here we are, by God's providence, ended up back uh, in Rhode Island. I worked as an engineer and now work as a project manager, and we move forward and we're excited to see what God has in store for us next. I think the harvest is ripe, laborers are few, and so we are working diligently to raise up laborers in the harvest, but through Holy Communion and also through this podcast to really invigorate people through the glories of scripture and church tradition
1: Yeah, you know, you're uh, on it obviously it's something we've talked about but you you believe it and you're manifesting it and for our audience i think those who probably take the effort to watch us and like us and those type of things they know this reality is that the, the church universal is in tremendous upheaval right and many if not most Faithful people are in existential crisis about what's going on. And it's through efforts of this type of ministry and in geographical locations, Rhode Island's very unique, as we've talked about. We'll talk about that a little bit about evangelism, is that new, fo- new faith communities are going to shape and form in these next months, years, and a decade or so uh, into these almost pod groups around Rhode Island. And, and it's going to look, It's going to be different than any of their Christian previous Christian experience, because uh, the Catholic Church is about to go through tremendous upheaval, Um, and I mean even the Southern Baptist Church is divided in half on the sexuality issue. Right. Uh, You and I have talked about evangelical churches around bailing on these moral issues. Uh, So those who are going to stay, here I stand, and Lord knows I know how hard that is. Yeah. Here I stand. I go no further. There's there, there there's going to hundreds of people in Rhode Island who are going to be using ministries and viewing ministries like this, and it'll form new communities. So, so you're a young prodigy now. Ten years, you'll be almost forty, and you'll you'll be a seasoned veteran who will be leading yeah. these type of ministries. I'll be a real old guy by then. Yeah. Yeah. You can bring me
0: like. Be changing your bedpan you can, or something. You, you can bring me tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like a good old Anglican, some yes. some black tea. Yes. Yeah. All right. I think that's a good place for us to pause. We may or may not get to evangelism in this episode. We're going to take a break and come back to it, but depending on the amount of time that it takes, we'll either see you all again later this episode or in the next one. Thank you so much for visiting and visiting, visiting this uh this studio of ours but more so, more importantly, listening and viewing on YouTube. Yes, thank you. God bless. Talk to you soon.